and welcome back to Between the Cuffs. This episode is a special one for a couple of different reasons, namely so because we will be discussing edge play together. Over these weeks and months, we have been covering a lot of great ground, and I feel ready to start discussing some topics that are a little more involved and require more intention and experience. Today's episode will also be the final episode of season one. This episode, unlike all of our others, I saved until the very last week to record and release. I wanted to personally get to discuss the journey with you all, but all that good stuff will come at the very end because we are talking about some really cool stuff today. So what is edge play? I feel like we've came up to this topic numerous times in this first season, but we haven't ever formally acknowledged and discussed it in the manner that I'd like. I also feel as though I have encountered a lot of kink-interested people who have confused edge play for the act of edging, and so I'm really excited to get to like differentiate and, and really put a name to what it is. Edge play has different meanings to everybody and to every dungeon. And so I would like to share what my personal definition of edge play is. I define edge play as any activity with a much higher risk profile, one that has a much more elevated possibility of doing harm to someone with the potential to kill someone. Again, this is my definition for edge play, not the general. Some examples of edge play that come to my mind include rope suspension, breath play, drowning or waterboarding, scarification, blood choking, CNC, and fire play. Now, not all of these examples might jump out as edge play, but I am sure that some of them do. However, all of them hold an elevated potential for serious harm, injury, or death. The reason I wanted to steer away from generalizations about edge play found online is that a large percentage of players define edge play as something that could hurt someone or something that only involves the breaking of skin. I have problems with both of these definitions for so many reasons, because technically you can hurt someone with just about any kink activity, and you can break skin doing non-edge activities like paddling or biting. So already you're starting to see how the community breaks this concept down into varying degrees of intent and intensity. Why is that? Edge play is something that is still frowned upon or considered insane and extreme, to a large portion of the players within our community. The amount of edge players comparative to the kink community as a whole is quite disproportionate, and these numbers skew out more when you start to look at open edge players, otherwise known as people who are out about engaging in edge play. And then that number gets even more fucked when you look at the open edge play community online. A lot of people are quick to judge or fear or ostracized because they simply lack the contextual information to edge play. It's nothing new that people fear what they don't understand. And to the outsider, it is pretty easy to be afraid of consensual waterboarding and bloodletting. This is one of the many reasons that I felt called upon to formally discuss edge play today. As many of you are very well aware, I am an open edge player. I am one who engages in a wide variety of on-the-edge activities, and I want to hold a safe space to discuss my relationship with these activities. On that note, I want to move into how I, as an individual, engage with edge play. The very first thing that comes to my mind is mindfulness. Well, that's not to say that I am not a mindful person already. It is to highlight that higher intensity 
higher risk activities necessitate higher awareness to engage with them. As we've touched upon a bunch this season, I'm also a multi-disabled human, which means that my inherent risk profile is pretty high already. For me to keep myself safe and reduce my risk of injury, I need to be much more cognizant of myself, my scene partners, and our bodies. When I do my scene negotiations for edge play, I put a lot more time and energy into fleshing out exactly what we're going to do, what our safety planning is, etc. Likewise, my capacity to include spare-of-the-moment ideas into our scene decreases because we are already engaging at such a high capacity. In scene, I have more frequent check-ins with my partner or partners, making sure everyone involved is still green. I also find that I keep myself slightly further from subspace, not by much, but enough to ensure that I am completely aware of all the sensations at hand. This step is really important for me because getting really subbed out means I don't feel as much pain, which is both a gift and a curse. I have to be much more on the ball to make sure I'm not injuring myself, not crossing the line between hurt and harm, which again, I define hurt as consensual pain and harm as detrimental pain or injury. Another part of my edge play practice is how I approach edge play with new play partners. Almost always, I will keep the scene power neutral, which means free from power dynamics. Of course, there are exceptions, but that is usually when I have engaged with people more than once or when I'm making art for my career. If it is my first time doing an edgy activity with somebody, I want to make sure that we can both be equally present, communicative, and mindful. I do a much more thorough negotiation process with new partners in a much more detailed post-scene reflection with these partners. I may or may not have covered this already, but I actually top for edge play. Surprise, surprise, yeah, I know, I sound like a big old fucking bottom, and I am, but I have so much fun topping for edge play, and so all of these points that I am touching upon apply to me regardless of my position on the DS spectrum. The last point I wanted to make in reference to my own practice is my enforcement of RAC, which again stands for Risk Aware Consensual Kink. One of the intersections that I have a zero tolerance policy for when edge play is on the table is being intoxicated in any capacity. I've played with partners who have been high before, had a drink before playing, used poppers, etc. But it is non-negotiable that anyone who engages in edge play with me is sober. I can, I have, and I will walk out of someone's house if I find out they are under the influence of something when we have an edge play scene that we had pre-planned together. This is not me trying to demonize substances or anything, it's actually far from it. We started smoking weed again, I did used to drink, I was straight edge for about a year. The reason this is so important to me is because being under the influence exponentially increases the risk of harm or a misstep, and that does not follow rack. Being risk aware means you have approached your play with mindfulness, risk mitigation, and proper safety measures have been taken. How can I expect you to use the correct amount of pressure with the scalpel if you're feeling buzzed? Too much pressure with the blade can literally be the difference between life and death cutting through the epidermis into the dermis, or the hypodermis, where arteries live. It means a lot to me to engage with people who view safety as strongly as I do, 
because it's not more important for the bottom to be safer than the top or vice versa. It is equally imperative for all parties to be safe. So what are some things to be mindful of when you are exploring edge play? I think the first thing is going to be your safe word system. I, for whatever reason, find myself gagged or in sensory deprivation more consistently when I am engaging with edge play. Not quite sure if there's a rhyme or a reason to that. It just kind of is, you know? So if you only have literal safe words, you are definitely missing some important groundwork here. I strongly encourage you and your scene partners to establish a non-verbal safe word with one another. I have met lots of different players who have used lots of different things to do this. Some people set up specific hands set to mean green or red. So regardless of what the hand is doing, if it comes up on the left, for example, it means you need to check in with your partner. I have done specific hand signals themselves. I have also encountered numerical squeezing to signify where you're at. For example, squeezing three times could indicate green, whereas squeezing once indicates red. Take the time with your scene partner to think of what works best for you given the scene at hand. I say think of what works by scene because not everything translates. If you use the hand squeezing method, that might work super well for seated positions, but the second you're standing spread eagle, it might become challenging to reach your partner's hand. Just things to think about, right? My next suggestion is a safety plan for you as an individual. Now, this might not apply to everyone, but I still think it's good to mention here, and I will use myself as our little guinea pig. Because I work in the sex industry, and because I create art with an elevated risk profile, oftentimes with strangers, I have established a safety plan that is tailored to myself as an individual. As many of you know by now, I do have multiple disabling conditions. The one that impacts my kink with strangers the most is a seizure disorder. I typed myself up this big ass master document of all my seizure information, like what they look like, how to treat them, all that jazz. I also added emergency contact information and I teach everyone I play with on how to identify seizures and when to call for assistance. I run all my play partners through my own physical limitations and I establish a verbal and a nonverbal safe word with them for the scene at hand. I then run all my scenes past my dominant for his approval, whether it's for personal or professional content. That way he can do his own quote unquote third party vetting. I have my location shared with him at all times so that he can ensure I am not leaving the property for any reason. I also set time restraints for myself. If I plan to meet somebody at seven, for example, I may say that 9 p.m. is when I need to be heading home and I will pass that information to my dominant. If 9.15, 9.30 rolls around and I haven't checked in with him, he will call me. And if he doesn't get through, he will come to me in person. Aside from my dom, I also have a platonic life partner who lives a ways away here in the state. They are my second tier of emergency contact and my third tier is their life partner. As you can see here, my bases are pretty fucking covered. I put a lot of work into making sure that I am as safe as possible. It is equally important to note that doing all of this work does not prevent things from happening. It simply helps to mitigate them. Risk awareness and risk prevention are two separate things. 
there is always a risk with kink, which is why it is so important to be aware of those risks. Now, what works for you as far as a safety plan might not be what works for me and vice versa. In fact, you could hate all of the things that I do and then do something completely different. I feel that listening to what works for me, though, provides a very good foundation for you to get your practice where you need it to be. I think that the only suggestion I would give everyone is to have a point of contact for your scenes. Whether that's a partner, a sibling, a friend, or just someone you trust that can make sure you get in and out safely and who can take proper action on the off chance that something goes wrong. Aside from that, I encourage you to take some time to think about what works best for you and then build your safety plan from there. A good safety plan and rack go hand in hand, my friends. I would love to recommend finding some classes that cover the specific edge play activity that you are interested in for you to gain some hands-on knowledge. Most big dungeons in every city lead educational classes on a variety of topics, so I want you to take a peek at your local scene from time to time. I have found that learning from an instructor is incomparable to learning via the internet. And that's not to say that you can't learn from the internet, but for me, being a kinetic learner and being able to ask questions in real time, as well as seeing demonstrations and practicing with a partner when applicable, it just really helps me lock down all that information. There are a few groups on FetLife that exist specifically to provide online courses for those who haven't found in-person courses in their area. They usually are ran off of Zoom, and these classes can be just as valuable as an in-person class. If you use FetLife and you're struggling to find these groups or these resources, feel free to message me and I can help point you in the right direction. Now, you might be wondering how you make the jump from the theoretical side of edge play to the practical, which is a very good thing. I recommend going slow. Have a very thorough discussion with your scene partner or partners, and feel free to take things at a looser pace. Personally, I've had lots of instances where, as the bottom, I was helping a top to learn the edge play activity, and we functioned in more of a lab-like setting rather than a traditional scene. We would play without power, i.e. power neutral, and we would check in very frequently. I would encourage them to add more force or more time or whatever was applicable to that situation, and as they became more confident, we would take things from there. If you want to have a really intense drowning scene, for example, and you know you want to play with heavy force, or maybe a CNC aspect, but one or both of you are new to the activity, then taking a few steps back would be of great benefit to both of you. Practice doing some drowning play very slowly. Communicate freely, and take your time elevating it from there. I can't remember if I've already said this, but me going to the hospital because of a scene is never in my risk profile. 10 out of 10 times, I will recommend you put your safety first, especially when it comes to edge play. If it's something that you're willing to experiment with, try labbing with your partner a day or a few days before your scene, and then see how that scene goes and reflect on it. Of course, by no means do you have to do this, it's just a suggestion as always. I'd also like you to consider writing up a reflection of your edge play scene and of the lab part if it feels right. This reflection could just be one sentence that says it was fun. It could be a whole book. 
personally in any DS dynamic that I have ever been in, I myself have been who lobbied to have a journal in which I recount all the scenes with that dominant, as well as how it made me feel, and some other aspects of the dynamic that just aren't relevant to this particular conversation. I have found that the scenes I reflected on allowed me to learn and integrate more than the scenes I haven't reflected on. So I would like to challenge you. As a takeaway from today's episode, I encourage you to write up some sort of reflection for any scene you have upcoming, whether long or short. I say challenge because this might be something that is not necessarily in your comfort zone, which is good because it is healthy to explore what those boundaries look like in a consensual and safe manner. So let's say that you have started gaining some really great hands-on skills at a certain activity, and you want to do it out in public at a dungeon. That process is going to look a little different than some of your previous scenes, that is, if you're new to edge play. Before we get any further, I want to highlight what it is you are packing to the dungeon. Keep in mind that you are now not in the comfort of your own environment, you're in a privately owned facility. Your cleanup process is going to be a bit different, and so will your transition from scene to aftercare, because now you have to clean everything you and your supplies have touched. Keep in mind that at most dungeon events, there will be at least one person who is new or less experienced at a specific activity. They might have come out to this event specifically to watch someone perform a specific activity, and I promise that they will be mentally writing very digilent notes. As a rack adherent player, it is your responsibility to check all of your boxes. Let's take needle play for example, which is an edge play activity I am very competent with on both sides of the slash. One thing you have to have to play with sharps is a sharps container to put your contaminated sharp objects into. Now, when you packed, did you hastily shove it into your toy bag, or did you put it in a gallon Ziploc to keep the contaminants away from your gear? It's little things like that that help to set the standards for everybody who is watching. I take great pride in my preparation and my execution because I know that at one point I was that person watching and taking notes. Sometimes I am still that person because I always want to improve. I want to help you create a well-honed practice that inspires others to do the same. Be the standard. Your scene is more likely to be interrupted or shut down altogether if a DM does not feel like you are displaying risk awareness or the proper skill set needed to execute this activity. Make sure you bring all your gear neat and organized. If you have your own cleanup gear, make sure it is stored separately. And make sure you double check that you are fully stocked on everything before you leave. Different activities require different gear. Rope suspension, for example, you need your emergency shears. Needles, you need your sharp kit. So just apply this focused lens to whatever it is you intend on doing. Each and every dungeon in every city has its own unique set of rules. And yes, some of them do overlap, but some do not, and it is imperative that you are familiar with these policies. As an example, I will use two dungeons in Colorado, Voodoo Leatherworks in Colorado Springs, in the Sanctuary in Denver. Both dungeons allow edge play. However, Voodoo only allows edge play at nights that are alcohol free. Voodoo allows breath play when it is based around air, like breath control, but they have a zero tolerance policy to blood choking. 
Meanwhile, the sanctuary doesn't allow breath play at all. So already I've listed four differences in the rules between dungeons, and these are four pretty important rules. So it's important not to make assumptions about what is and isn't on the table for your scene. Some dungeons will require you to check in with the DM before setting up any scene. Some won't need to check in at all. Regardless, if you're going to undertake an edge play scene and you have doubts or questions in mind, just check in with the DM. They are going to be your best resource on what is and isn't okay. And if they know about your scene ahead of time, they might be able to get you more accommodating furniture or a better position in the room. Like I said a minute ago, your transition between scene and aftercare will have that pause for you to clean up your station. Make sure that you take the time to recognize your partner however you see fit before breaking down to clean. Nobody wants to do something super intense to feel abandoned afterwards and then have to deal with the drop period, whether that is top drop or bottom drop. After you finish cleaning up, I strongly encourage you to take advantage of an aftercare space to do whatever your aftercare process might look like. Missing this step could make or break your experience, so just be mindful. Other than that, your regular dungeon scene procedures should look just about the same. I just like to highlight the little things that may seem obvious to some, but not to others, because this information could become a keystone for someone else's practice. We are starting to wrap up our time together, and I am doing my best not to stall and delay the end of the first season, but I have to do it. This journey has been such a fun one to undertake, and I have to tell you, I was so nervous to release this into the universe come launch day. I cannot tell you how many people I had preview my episodes and how many times they listened to each episode, all my revisions, re-recordings, and remixing, let alone how many times I would listen and rewrite and edit and generally stress over these episodes. I was forcing myself to keep posting about it everywhere I could to hold myself accountable. And holy shit, I am so happy to be here. I could not have predicted its reception, its audience, or its impact. And just knowing that there are people hearing my voice right now brings me so much happiness. In just a few months, our first season has reached 44 states and 30 countries. I don't take that lightly at all. Knowing that I have garnered such a large audience to discuss such important topics really fills me with so much satisfaction. I am so proud of everything that we have done here so far, and I am so excited to continue this journey. Like I said in the intro, I recorded this episode this week, as opposed to the previous episodes which were all pre-recorded. I did this because I wanted to personally thank each and every one of you who took the time and energy to dive into this program and strengthen your own foundations. So on this note, I would like to formally announce a second season. I'm going to take some time off to finish my recordings, interview new people, and just generally make space as a very disabled human. Some of you might know this because I think I mentioned it in one of our last episodes but some of you may not. Rue and I will be going on tour and we're going to make a fuck ton of art and smut alike. While I'm on the road, I will be recording a few interviews with some of the artists and performers that I'm working with. 
and I will be sharing loads of stuff across my social media. This is a great opportunity to follow me online if you're a fan of the show. That way you can follow along with the tour itself and all the work it leads to. While I've already done some work on the second season already, I would like to extend this opportunity to say that I am interested in interviewing a handful of listeners of this podcast for the second season, probably cutting it off at three people. Individuals who identify as members of the LGBTQIA community, as BIPOC or disabled, will all get prioritized, as it feels important to me to use my information, my energy, and my platforms to bring light to these groups. I would like to say that for the second season, my sound equipment will be upgraded, as well as my mixing. It'll take me a little bit more time to get everything edited, previewed and formatted, and then scheduled, especially with this tour, but I promise a second season will release sometime in 2024. Just as a reminder for everybody, I go by the name That Pain Pup on all social media, and I encourage you to check out whatever links of mine speak to you the most. But speaking as the human ray, I just wanted to say thank you again for tuning into what I had to say. This podcast has been such a vulnerable adventure for me, and it has meant so much to share it with you. I have received so much positive feedback from so many members of the pack, of this family that we are all growing together, and seeing how many people who are queer or trans or disabled say that this podcast means so much to them has truly made my fucking life so much brighter. So for the last time this season, thank you for dedicating your energy, your attention, your time, and your practice with the group. I will see you all at the start of our second season. And from the bottom of my heart, I love you.